What is going on, everybody? Welcome to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and uh, hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. Uh, But until we get there or until Joe Biden throws me in jail for saying so... um, I am your host, Josh. Nice to meet you. If it's your first time stopping by, I really do appreciate it. Um, it actually really, actually, it like really means a lot um, that anybody listens to this show because I've spent a lot of time trying to educate myself. I clearly do not spend a lot of time on these episodes. <laughs> Excuse my cough. I'm still getting over ad cold. It's really not good. Um, But even though I I, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, editing and, uh, you know, writing scripts and shit like that, I do spend a lot of time trying to educate myself about these topics in order to come on the show and give, you know, the truth, give a fairly, you know, educated and well-understood analysis of key problems, political, you know, theories, etc. Um, that takes a lot of time, and not for nothing, it takes a lot of energy. And the reason why I do it is because, you know, I want to be able to put out this show, um, but I especially want to put it out with factual um, knowledge Um, Because our ultimate weapon as Marxists, as communists, as socialists and anarchists is the truth. Because a majority of the time, especially in Western countries like the United States, we are incredibly um, drenched, or excuse me, improper word. We are incredibly... uh, um, Without, uh, I'll just say it the way a normal person would say it. There's no truth to be had by A, the history of this country and how it is taught within this country. B, how the politics and governance is run. C, how capitalism, the economic form and function of the United States, of colonialism and imperialism how they function, and D, any in-between news or information um, is heavily, heavily, uh, shall we say, misinterpreted by the United States uh, government um, and, and whoever else is deciding what media and news is to be covered and how it is to be covered and what is to be said when it is covered. Um... It is very clear that each individual group of media, of educational uh, um, knowledge, has a specific narrative in mind. That narrative being, the United States is a good country. The United States is an exceptional country. The United States is a country at all, founded not on genocide um, and, and, and torture and raping and, and 
pillaging and everything. That's that's the narrative we get when we go to high school, when we get into our history classes, when we talk to our family members. That's also the history they receive, so that's the history they repeat. And it becomes almost impossible in some cases to have genuine conversations with people because of the the true lack of information that they have. And that's ultimately what it is, you know. A lot of people, including myself, like to get all high horse and mighty about the fact that, oh, this group of people is stupid. Oh, the Trump supporters are stupid. The people in the South are stupid. What do you think made them stupid? What do we think would have made these groups of individuals stupid? Intentional misinformation and miseducation over generations right because that's ultimately what the history of the United States is um and speaking of truth and the history of the United States and speaking of socialism and communism here in the United States we do have a history of working class struggle we have a history during and after the civil war which went into a lull. Um, we have a history in the early 1900s of working class struggle. And in fact, it is quite talked about by a lot of Western leftists as being something that we need to revisit and reignite within the United States. Now, I've said that myself before. But I'd kind of like to reframe that. Uh, The reason being, I recently have dedicated a lot of time to indigenous studies here within the U.S. and just, you know, within settler colonial societies across the world. And one of the books that I just finished reading is called Settlers by Jay Sakai. Heavily recommend it. Um... The Red Nation and other groups like them, I believe, were kind of the ones who put that book in front of me. So thanks to them uh, by mentioning it and, and really being able to expand upon uh, expand upon the knowledge that's within it without ever necessarily mentioning the book until you know, obviously they did. Um, but it's quite clear, um, looking a little bit more historically and by that I mean like concrete history not idealized history because we have a lot of romanticized history here in the United States all of which is quite inaccurate so when we are talking about historical evidence we are talking about concrete provable historical evidence not what our history teachers told us right so here in the U.S., right, we kind of know the history to some extent. Many of us might have it a little butchered, but, like, you have the earliest settlements of, you know, the Dutch and Spanish (coughs) here in the United States. What we should refer to as Turtle Island from there, 
You had different forms of colonization. You had resource extraction. You had settler colonialism. You had plain and simple military occupation. Um, And all of these, albeit different forms, had a clearly connected and similar essence, which was the domination and control of Turtle Island. Now, from this point, we have a lot of fuck shit that happens. (laughs) You also have the importation of the first slaves, Africans who were taken from their homeland, who were taken from their families, from their life, from their culture, and from everything they know, to come to Turtle Island to be the Anglo-American, the incoming European uh, um, and Puritan settlers and colonists to be their labor force because they tried doing it for a while by themselves in Jamestown and a lot of people ran away (laughs) a lot of people ate each other Um, and they also tried in a lot of cases to enslave indigenous peoples Um, in some cases they quote unquote succeeded in the sense that they were able to physically capture and hold enslaved indigenous peoples, especially women and children. Um, But their goal was not as it necessarily was with Africans at the time because their intention in capturing the women and children was to eradicate the race of indigenous... the quote-unquote race... Right. This is how simplistic their their thought process is. The quote-unquote race of indigenous peoples, right? However, it wasn't until after the end of slavery, in a lot of cases, that the official practice of enslaving women and children Africans was intended to do the same. You know, obviously it would be a poor practice if you, as a slave owner... Um, try to kill your own slaves. You wouldn't be a very good slave owner. Um, Not that there's such a thing as a good slave owner. Let's make sure that we don't harbor any of those beliefs either because that's heavily taught in America. Um, But our history from this point, especially, you know, kind of like the 17 and 1800s, 1700s see incredible slave uprisings. They see uh, all kinds of warring between indigenous communities and settler um, um, occupying camps. Um, You see a lot of warring between settlers uh, due to an already existent wealth inequality between a majority of them and a minority of them. And all of this leads us directly into kind of the 1800s, because I'm just going over a brief overview to discuss a specific topic here, where a lot of white leftists here in the United States might say, 
the, the real labor history of the U.S. begun with groups such as the AFL, um, the Knights of Labor, uh, and a lot of these organizations began popping up, right? And Howard Zinn has a great book of People's History of the United States that discusses in length the early days of these organizations. But Howard Zinn also does a fantastic job of discussing the women's workers' organizations, which we commonly keep out of the discussion when we are talking about a lot of organized labor. These women's um, groups were oftentimes uh, coming about much before men's groups, and in a lot of cases were acting much more militant and much more, um, I guess we would say, like, socialist um, and collective than the male workers in a lot of cases. But even these two groups kind of when it came down to the question of African folks or black folks being led into the uh, organizations, led into the unions, uh, that was not a question uh, that could not um, happen. When it came to letting indigenous people, I mean, this is the thing, it's like you had indigenous people, you had immigrants, you had settlers, right? Because there were the original settlers uh, and kind of their lineage. And then there were the arrival of the more poor European folks um, who became, in some cases, the poor white working force. Um, you had enslaved African-Americans, black folks. I, don't, I, I, you know, and then you had also a lot of Asian immigrants, you had a lot of Chinese folks, you were beginning to see a lot of Japanese and Korean folks, um, and all this because of, you know, not only issues within their own country, but again, the original problem uh, and, and practice of the United States was that it was a land grab. It came over here and it stole land, right? Because they didn't have land in Europe. And in Europe at the time, the ultimate, you know, force of power and of wealth was land. There was no land to be had. The aristocracy and the nobility had it all. So we'll just sail across the ocean, come over here, massacre and genocide a few million people, enslave a few million more, and boom, we got our own land, right? But because of this, the promise of the American dream, or at least the promise of any land whatsoever was a kind of, you know, coercive measure to get folks to come to the United States and help settle it because they needed, they needed members to their armies. The occupying army needed numbers and they needed also groups to put in front of the incoming armies, um, such as the poor European folks, such as black folks. Uh, and such as women, to take the brunt of the issues which this society had created and the contradictions between the colonial society and the colonized societies. So back to what I was saying, right? You have an early history of workers' unions, of strikes, of organized labor... 
and in a lot of cases it was coming around the same time that Marx and Engels were writing, uh, that a lot of uprisings and strikes and unions and stuff like that were being formed in Europe, and it was coming at ultimately a time when capitalism, through the Industrial Revolution, was really beginning to take over. Because you have to think before this, a lot of times your economic drivers were in fact, A, your ability to produce your own raw materials, right? We got to think of how much cotton absolutely dominated the landscape of the United States, but also your ability therein to feed your people. Because a problem that the United States had was, well, it had all the resources to do it, The only issue was they just didn't give those resources to the people who needed them. And also, again, land. You got to have land. Um, You got to have land to grow things. You got to have land for people to sleep on and live on, even though you're not going to let them, you know, have proper shelter or allow them to, you know, kind of be able to live in homes uh, affordably. That's always been a problem since feudalism. Um, and since even before then. But before I get too much off track, um, when capitalism really began to take over in the mid-1800s, you see a lot of, you know, workers' uh, um, rights beginning to be struggled for. You begin to see the early days of the eight-hour work struggle, workday struggle, um, You see a lot of the beginnings of, like, uh, maybe not a minimum wage, but, you know, discussing how poor wages are, how, uh, you know, unsatisfactory the amount of money that these workers are receiving is in comparison to what they require. Because even today, we discuss wages in a very simplistic manner. We say, oh, well, let's give these people $15 an hour. Well, what does $15 an hour get you? You know, I think we really need to do some some pretty good calculations and realize that ultimately, if you want to have in the United States a country that requires you to pay even for health care, even for food, even for housing, if you want to have enough money to really survive, in a lot of cases, I believe I've seen the estimate at around $35 to $40 being a truly adequate and livable minimum wage. Um, so just think about that for a second while you make twelve fifty or less an hour. Um, but these struggles began to, you know, pop off all over the place, not only in Europe, but also in the United States. And a lot of white leftists celebrate this shit. They talk about the early anarchist o- organizers. They talk about May Day. They talk about, you know, the shirtwaist company uh, a strike. They talk about all these different organizations, all these different groups, and all these different actions that were done on behalf of, quote, organized labor. But how many of us, including those who celebrate these histories, are investigating who was allowed to become a part of organized labor. As we discussed before, this history is an exclusively white and exclusively 
settler and especially exclusively male conversation. The earliest members of the Knights of Labor had complete and utter, you know, uh, disdain for black people, especially after the Civil War and after slavery was abolished, you see an intense increase in uh, anti-black, anti-immigrant, uh, and anti-women uh, sentiment in many, if not all, of these early um, workers' organizations. And the, the problem is because at a time when women were simple domestic servants and at a time when black folks were enslaved and therefore could not compete for jobs, it was all right for these groups to advocate for the ending of slavery. It was all right for these groups to give word to the need to end the awful practice of the domestic enslavement of women. But that was it. They could give word to it, right? But ultimately, they knew that the freeing of these groups of people adds more workers to the pool of workers, to the pool of millions of constantly unemployed that capitalism has to keep, has to keep and create in order to have workers to pull from, in order to be able to keep a living wage so low, in order to not offer any kind of benefits, because ultimately there is always someone who is suffering much worse than you who will take whatever scraps they were offering you that you felt you were too good for. This is the way they, you know, sculpted the system, this is the way they created it, and this is the way they think. Um, We have to have that truth. But also, it is important to recognize why we have to have these truths. Because one of the most celebrated times in American labor history is the Jacksonian era. After the Civil War, after Reconstruction, uh, when, you know, you had Johnson, you had Jackson, um, and other pro-capitalist liberals and conservatives who basically handed the pie right over to the northern capitalists, tried to hand the pie right back to the southern plantation owners. Um, But herein lies the problem, which is both of these people were explicitly anti-indigenous. And how could you be a president of the United States and not be anti-indigenous. The whole history of the United States, everything that makes people be proud to be quote-unquote American, is the freedom that they have here. But that freedom is wholeheartedly based on the oppression and lack of freedom of black people, of women, of transgender and uh, non-binary and non-conforming folks, And especially in this country and other settler colonial states, it is based on the oppression of the indigenous people, their land, and their resources. That is how you get to a point of quote-unquote freedom within a settler colonial state. And that freedom 
as we see during the Jacksonian era, as we see during the early years of organized labor, is only and specifically for white working class men. During the Jacksonian era and during the early days of organized labor here in the United States, you had a lot of incredible gains. Again, they were able to succeed in earning the eight-hour workday, even though a lot of this came from the struggle in Europe and what happened in Haiti in the early 1800s, living as a very real example for the, the powers, not only here in the United States, but all over the world, as to what can happen when you go against a large group of organized people. But the difficulty was what the organized labor was asking for was not true freedom. They were not asking for freedom of any kind for a majority of the people in this country, as in black folks, indigenous people, and women. They weren't even asking for true freedom for poor white working class people. They were asking for a seat at the table. I don't want to work eight, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. I don't want to feel like a slave. Okay, cool. We'll let you work eight hours. Cool, thanks. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I really don't feel like making pennies a day. Like, I need to be able to afford food and housing. Okay, we'll get you a higher wage. A few things with that. First and foremost, that was only for people who were a part of the organized groups which, again, only allowed in a lot of cases, if not all, white men into their fold. On top of this, a lot of the benefits also could only benefit white men. White men being the only group of people at the time who were legally allowed to own property. White men being the hegemonic uh, and dominant group within American settler society. Um... The white male being allowed to get away, as we see today, uh, with just about anything, um, with courts that won't um, sentence him, and with a society which wholeheartedly kind of builds up and supports his history and his existence. That is white men. In this period of time, uh, you see, again, a lot of successes, but you see a lot of compromises. You see a lot of handicaps. You see a lot of, you know, half measures and shortcomings. Because ultimately, what they were asking for was a slice of the pie. They weren't asking to give the land back to indigenous people whose land this rightfully is. They weren't asking to end capitalism and the exploitative wage system. They were asking for a higher wage, some land, cushier jobs, and hopefully, because ultimately the American dream has always been the mission of white working class people and white settlers in the United States, they just want a piece of the pie. They want to come to the table and help divide up the land. That's what they want. That's what they're looking for because that's what we as white people are taught we are to want. Even today, you know, we're taught, not even just white people anymore, but we're taught that the American dream is still alive and well. And those of us who are of my age, right around 22, know how much of a fucking joke that is because, guys, we're not going to have houses. Like, 
corporations now since the pandemic have been going up and buying as many you know vacant lots and as many apartments and houses and apartment complexes as they can because they know right now nobody can afford it so now they'll own it so now they're going to be able to hike up the rent they're going to be able to charge whatever they want and all the money is going to go directly into these huge corporations pockets which are already wealthy beyond our wildest dreams that's just housing let alone jobs, food, and any kind of other securities. But my overall point is this. The history of the United States is a white settler colonial society. It it can't be separated from that. So in both the 1800s and the early 1900s with the CPUSA and other anarchist and socialist groups, you had a lot of the similar white supremacist, male-dominant, heteropatriarchal um, and and ultimately American uh, United States perspective. Again, even someone like Eugene V. Debs, who was calling for fantastic things, fell short, came to some inconcluding conclusions, um, led people astray due to his own chauvinistic beliefs, And all of this because of the misinformation and the ignorance that is beaten into our heads from conception, even, you know, because you got to figure our fucking parents are as brainwashed as, you know, a lot of us end up being. And we can't do that anymore. We can't fall victim to this narrative about white organized labor here in the United States. Because white organized labor in the United States did not care about the majority of human beings walking on the land that we now call the United States. They didn't care about indigenous people dying and being genocided. They didn't care about women being sexually assaulted en masse and domestically enslaved and thrown in insane asylums and women's prisons when they went against the heteropatriarchal society that we live in today. They didn't talk about the struggle of former slaves, current slaves, and black people in general. Nor did they fight for the end of the capitalist system, the end of the colonial system, the end of settling the United States or Turtle Island. None of this was advocated for because ultimately organized labor within the United States was still centered around the idea that the United States is a viable and valid and a truly uh, reputable government system that deserves to be supported in any shape or form, which is a joke. Um, And we know this is a joke because we, a lot of us, live in the United States and see how fucking awful it is. Um, But I just want to finish on this point really quick that ultimately, when we are struggling for the working class, when we are trying to educate when we are trying to push for gains for the masses of people all across the country as well as the world, we have to understand really what our goal is. We cannot be short-sighted. We cannot advocate for simplistic and symbolic gains. We cannot struggle for things which will not feed the people, which will not house the people which will not overthrow the system of oppression and destitution that exists under a capitalist, colonial, or imperialist society. Because these societies, albeit different in form, again, are the same in essence. They are class societies. They are practices created by class societies, 
which is a society built on the oppression of one class by another. The United States is a class society. A majority of the world is a class society. You have a dominant socioeconomic group, aka class, which is able to write all the laws, enforce all of those laws, break all of those laws while not being held uh, responsible or accountable. They decide what economic practices we will uphold. They decide which laws and legislation should uh, go into effect. They decide how we, the people, should live our lives working nine to five, um, going to college, doing all these things, which ultimately don't lead us towards uh, a whole, a holistic life but lead us down a capitalist path, lead us towards a capitalist, uh, uh, or I shouldn't say a capitalist life because we ourselves are not capitalists. Don't get that twisted either. You're a wage slave. You are an exploited worker. You are uh, uh, a part of the working class. If you're listening to this podcast, I would assume. But we as a working society have to recognize where our where our bacon comes from, you know, where, where are we getting our money from? Where are we getting our resources from? Where are we getting our jobs from? Exploitation, corruption, and capitalism. All things which do not work for the benefit of all, but the benefit of few. And that's ultimately what I wanted to finish on. You know, the white organized labor struggles here in the United States can be looked at as something to recognize for what it is. Um, it had successes, it uh, got a lot of gains for workers, but again, it got a lot of gains for white workers. It got a lot of gains for white people in a white supremacist settler colonial society. But yeah, that's, that's ultimately all I wanted to give for you folks today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you don't already, please go ahead and follow me on my social media. That's In Defensive Liberation on TikTok. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, If you like the show but would like to maybe see it in written form or check out my website, you can go to For For Liberation, no caps, no spaces, dot Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com forward slash website. Um, But thank you for listening. Uh, I hope it was educational to any amount. Um, And remember, we need internationalism we need uh uh, intersectionalism and we need to ultimately be fighting for all oppressed people not just ourselves socialism is not about the self it is about the other Uh, thank you for listening have a great and safe day try to stay cool and dry um and we'll see you next time bye folks